0: Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Grayhawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Nefflin, and you're listening to what wound up being the Cruel Summer Showdown, in that has Cruel Summer playing in it, and Coach Boone is pretty cruel during the summer in Room Titans.
1: That's a way that you can introduce the final of our sports bracket. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we will be discussing our two finalists. We have 2000's Remember the Titans, as well as 1984's The Karate Kid. Rather than get into a long preamble, I think just give a refresher to what these films beat out to get here and then get into our discussion. Yeah, that's fair if you didn't listen to the previous 14 episodes and want to sort of the, the quick recap. So in round one, Remember the Titans went up against Bend It Like Beckham. And that was hard. Bend It Like Beckham is... Definitely my kind of movie. Yes. But we both kind of agreed that Bend It Like Beckham wasn't quite a movie about sports.
0: It definitely had sports as a
1: major part of it, but I think that it was about other stuff too. And I yeah. think that makes it less strong as a sports film. Then in round two, Remember the Titans went up against Space Jam. Which is the kind of competition that our podcast was designed to set up. I know. I love it. It's great. It's wonderful. It's a weird... Com- but Also, you know, a lot of, a lot of commonalities there. Yeah. Then in the semifinals, Rumor of the Titans went up against Cool Runnings. Mm-hmm. Again, some interesting similarities there. Mm-hmm. But in both of those cases,
0: Remember the Titans wound up being a bit more cohesive as a narrative.
1: Yes, and a little bit more technically proficient. Yeah. And then on the other side of the bracket, we have The Karate Kid. Round one went up against Wimbledon. And Wimbledon, while a great film, just really couldn't compete with The Karate Kid... Mm-hmm. However, that wasn't one that I'd never heard of before this bracket And I'm really glad we watched it That was delightful Then in round two, the Karate Kid went up against Blades of Glory <sighs> oh, what, a, what an unfair match that was Yeah, the only reason Blades of Glory moved on is because of Slapshot was even worse Somehow, somehow even worse And then we get to our previous episode in which Karate Kid went up against Stick It
0: Yeah, and that's the other uh, other very hard choice
1: yeah, that that was a tough cut. Stick It is very interesting and a very solid movie. It kind of came down to Stick It took some risks, and unfortunately not all of them paid off. And we also kind of felt that Stick It was only able to take those risks because of the foundation that the Karate Kid built. And with that being the case, we felt the win should go to Karate Kid.
0: Mm-hmm. But again,
1: like very...
0: Very close, and I think you know neither is a bad film. Neither yeah. you know, deserves not to not be watched.
1: Honestly, uh, comparing this bracket to our previous comics bracket, there are very few films here that I would not recommend to watch.
0: Yeah, I mean, you got Slapshot, not worth it. Pin, I yeah. would not watch. There is a place for Kingpin in someone's movie library, but not the kind of movie library I want.
1: And I would also... You have to be a specific type of person to enjoy Chariots of Fire. Mm. I do not think that, that's very much not a general audiences movie. No. And then
0: also Rocky is very important to film history, but maybe not super rewatchable
1: to me. So Yeah, like Rocky and Slapshot definitely have some trigger warnings on them, so mm. uh, be prepared for that. It's really weird to me that we listed four movies, but none of them were Blades of Glory. I mean, we we set our piece on Blades of Glory, that, yeah. Like it has some things that it does well, and it's surprisingly not as bad as you would expect for that premise. Right.
0: Another movie I'm actually kind of glad I saw. <laughs> I'm not glad I saw it twice.
1: <laughs> That's fair. I, I think we've kind of gone over the progression of this bracket. Let's go ahead and dig into our final match, yeah. starting with Remember the Titans. Yeah. Where would we like to begin? I know we both had yet more points about racism in Remember the Titans, which... You know, yeah, we're tackling that again. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to avoid. But yeah, I did want to talk about Coach Yost. Because the way his racism is portrayed in the film is much different than many of the other white characters. Yost has this much more subtle form of racism. And it's very easy to miss unless you have experienced it in real life and know what you're looking for. Or are keeping an eye out for it specifically. This kind of starts off with after Yost prevents his players from getting involved in the riot at the general store in the beginning of the film.
0: If you ever want to play for me again, get in the truck, now.
1: He takes them to his office where Boone is waiting for them. And here we start to see some of the racism from other characters directed towards Boone, specifically uh, assistant coach Tyrell and Gary. Why ain't you outside there with all your little friends hollering? But Yoast is guilty of it too. The way he kind of shuffles Cheryl around to move her away from Boone. Mm. Some of his subtle digs of...
0: Coach Boone's school board made the decision to put you on my staff. I did not hire you.
1: Then later on, when Boone comes to talk things over with Yoast after it's found out that Boone is going to be head coach. The way that Yost says it seems like color is all that really matters in this town.
0: Color won't matter. From the looks of our little situation we got us here, I'd say it's about all it does.
1: Followed by the way he says Work under you. When Boone tries to convince him to become uh, assistant coach, followed by a very unfriendly good night. Good
0: night, coach. A lot of stuff to imply that while he maybe could kind of get Around to the idea of Baldy, he can't get behind the idea of a black person being, like, above him. Mm -hmm. Lots to unpack there, but, like, there's there's not a better way to phrase it.
1: Yeah. And, like, this kind of continues on. Like, the show defiance at the call-out meeting right before training camp. We see the look that Yost has on his face after he watches Boone punish Petey at camp. That then comes back later when Yost grabs Petey for his defense. We start to see a bit of a turnaround and evolution of Yost when Boone brings him the opposition research right before like the third game. Mm-hmm. I think it's at this point he finally realizes Boone was not just given this job because he is a black person, but he is talented and he deserves this position and he and Yost are on a pretty equal footing as far as their ability to bring this team together Mm -hmm. and it's part of the whole like we have to work together to be better yeah Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of back and forth we get the scene with him and coach tyrell on the diner and he effectively tells coach tyrell
0: i brought you here i want you with me but you gotta do what you gotta do
1: But then we also get some of the victim blaming of Boone after the brick is thrown through his window. Yeah. And part of that is because Cheryl is there and he's scared for his daughter. But again,
0: it's the whole like protecting my daughter from this scary black man.
1: Yeah. I think Yost finally turns up that corner when he stops the attempt at rigging the game and he's specifically willing to sacrifice his career to do it. Mm. And you know, it's a very important scene in the movie because there's a new title drop right afterwards when he's egging on the defense
0: you make sure they remember forever the night they played the Titans and the culmination of this whole arc is that like very awkward, blunt, not very well written speech for the last game I hope you boys have learned as much from me this year as I've learned from you you've taught this city how to trust the soul of a man rather than the look of him and I guess it's about time I joined the club I understand what the speech is doing. I understand what's going on. But I feel like Yoast is like doing a whole, like, this is all about me and what I've learned thing. And it
1: it feels very self-congratulatory. Yeah, that's fair. Yoast is not a perfect example of how to not be racist. No.
0: And I mean, I think ignoring that this is based on real people, I think that as far as character construction, I think that's actually a very good thing to do because it can show that you know there are lots of ways to to get this wrong and ways to change and all that jazz. That's Mm -hmm. important, but yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Yost's and race, I've from the very beginning been like this huge fan of Cheryl, uh, Yost's weirdly belligerent daughter who's just super into football and has some strong feelings about things and I finally understand why she's hearing what her role in the film is. Her attitudes towards race and racism are very childish and it winds up being a good way to show that other characters who are acting like her are acting like spoiled children instead of giving their attitudes any kind of validity or basis in reality. They're just throwing a temper tantrum, and I think that's a really good way to do things. And the film makes it very clear that that's what it's doing when Cheryl has a line, a white player's dad is upset that his son is been, she says, He's getting beat like he stole
1: something, Mr. Bossley. You just stay out of it, girl.
0: It's a good way of showing her arc in a, in a way that I think is better done than Yo speech at the end, because it doesn't look right at the camera and tell you what she learned. It's
1: just, it's very clear what's happened if you're paying attention. Moving on from Yost to Boone, I want to talk about Denzel Washington and his very subtle facial acting here and how much it brings to the character of Boone. Mm. There are just these few moments where you can really tell that Denzel Washington gets this character and gets how to portray him. There's this eyebrow wriggle that he has right after the confrontation with Gary Uh, as they're getting on the buses for training camp. And he realizes, things are more tense than I first realized, and I've got to do something about it. And he's kind of surveying the situation and figuring out what to do. At training camp, we get this devilish smile and whistle right around the top line, where Yost is saying,
0: There's a fine line between tough and crazy, and you're flirting with it.
1: Which is just accentuating Boone and his... Very authoritarian training regime. During his Immortan Joe line? <laughs> right after that, but yes. Yeah. But he also gets a little bit more vulnerability from Boone as well. Yes, I love that part of him. Specifically, a few points during the first game where Boone's very worried about losing. I think especially the look on Boone's face when he's talking to his assistant coach. You think Yost are trying
0: to let them score on purpose? What? Do you?
1: Oh, come on. Huh? The look of worry on his face is very, very well done.
0: Yeah, I think it would be very easy for this character to seem like a villain, and I think we'll get to that a little later, Mm. but because Denzel Washington does such a good job of making it clear that Boone's toughness is at least partially performative, and that he has a very scared shell right under that, and you Mm. see that a bit when he's talking to Yost one-on-one, it makes the character a lot more nuanced than he might have otherwise been, and Mm. it's a really important part of the acting.
1: It is. A few more examples, we have uh, his glassy, on the verge of tears eyes when he's talking with Yost and during the press conference after Gary's injury. Then also after they win the championship game and he is talking with coach Yost and Henry like out on the field you can just see how much emotion that he's trying to hold back especially because of the way that Ed Henry is talking with him. This very prominent accomplished white coach who is treating him as an equal which is the first time that's happened in their entire season.
0: Mm -hmm. Saying that Denzel Washington is a good actor is not, you know, a revolutionary thing, but I think it is important to, like, just keep reminding us of that. It's a big part of this movie, and I think that his skill in creating this character, like, forms a backbone around which the rest of the film revolves. Yeah,
1: Yes, Denzel Washington is a good actor, but not everyone could necessarily articulate specifically why. This is part of why. Like, being able to really get in that mindset, being able to have those emotions on his face without having to say what he's feeling. Speaking
0: of really subtle acting, having looked at Marita doing stand-up and th- and seeing what they were originally planning for the character and how the character wound up being, I think that character would not have worked at all if it wasn't for the intense comedic chops <clears throat> of Nurika Marita. There's a lot of very subtle, funny bits to him. Like, there, there's a really like good bit where Daniel's asking him about these, uh, the Sanders, and he says, Funny, you should ask. It's a very good, wry line, and he also has a lot of very good face acting that brings a lot of humor and puckishness to this character that I think would not have worked if they had gone with this much more serious role they planned.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of knowing looks from Mr. Miyagi that have a lot of impact. One of the biggest ones that I can think of is when Mr. Miyagi comes to fix the in the apartment and Daniel is practicing karate from a book he mentions you know the black eye and Daniel's like oh yeah I fell riding my bike Mr. Miyagi gives him this knowing look and- okay no hurt to handle with mm-hmm. and then the very angry determined face on Daniel afterwards Miyagi knows exactly what's going on and that's kind of when he starts to intervene
0: mm-hmm. a thing I notice is that Miyagi will have these very powerful emotions of it he keeps very restrained. Watching this note times to see how Miyagi's emotions are acted, I can see how incredibly angry he is during the scene where he's creases dojo, but how well he's keeping that down because he has a job to do and he has things he needs to achieve and being angry won't help him do
1: that. Yeah, he specifically needs to not escalate.
0: Yeah, there's an element of like his stillness and his not making jokesness that really sells that character. And bring this up because I think both of these characters wind up forming the backbone of their respective movies. But speaking of comparison, contrasting between Boone and characters from Karate Kid, can you talk about how Crease
1: from Karate Kid is basically Boone if he wasn't a protagonist? Pretty much, Crease is dialed up a little bit more, but that's just because of the nature of karate in comparison to football. I mean, they're both full contact, but with football, you're not specifically trying to like knock your opponent out.
0: And at least part of that is because Crease is meant to be just. An antagonist in the sports movie, so just he's not given the nuance that Boone has. Yeah. But they both have this very weakness, bad, strength, good, no mercy kind of attitude. I think Crease shows how that is actually kind of a gross attitude. And whereas we talked before about how we, we're not super down with it in Room of the Titans. While the character is really great, it's still a uncomfortable mindset to spend time in.
1: Yeah. The way the character is translated onto the screen is very good that character still has some major flaws that are a little gross
0: and while some of them are kind of unpacked through the film it's not ever i think given the time it needs to really fully call out how not great that is yeah and the way the karate kid is almost entirely a conversation about toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity Mm -hmm.
1: you can even see a little bit of an extension of that conversation in cobra kai because Johnny feels very much like the other side of that Crease Boone coin is like, here's what happens when someone is instilled with that and then just can't live up to it. Mm-hmm. And the anger and the self-loathing and self-destruction that flows from it.
0: For sure. These films actually work really well in conversation because they both have a noticeable conversation about attitude. In Earl Titans, is that great conversation that culminates in, uh, Attitude reflect leadership. which is a really good way to put things and then in karate kid
1: no such thing uh, bad student only bad teacher
0: while teachers and leaders aren't strictly the same thing there's a lot of crossover between these two things especially in these particular cases where the teacher is also a mentor instead of just just an instructor or an educator Mm -hmm. i think seeing the extremes of the attitudes of the students is a really fun examination for both these films if you wanted to like unpack that
1: I think it does kind of get at the heart of what we enjoy about sports films is like at the heart of it. A lot of sports films highlight the importance of that mentor-mentee relationship between athlete and coach. The films that have done well on our bracket are films that really accentuate that.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a way that *Room of the Titans* is really good. Is that because it has this huge cast? Is that it can have multiple levels of mentor mentee and leader follower? Because you've got mm-hmm. the coaches and then the various team captains of the team organization that I sort of understand, not all the way. Mm-hmm. I don't understand football still, um, and how they interact with their team and how that. Forms a in-group mentality and when in the latter half of the film the team realizes that they have to fix themselves they can't rely on coach Boone to do it all for them and I guess coach Yost yeah
1: because of that huge cast we get to see all the different varieties of ways that that mentor relationship can reflect on those they are mentoring Mm -hmm. like we see it with Boone and Louie Lastic we see it with Yost and Petey and we see all these different relationships that these players have with their coaches mm-hmm.
0: the Boone elastic bit is another bit that we probably could talk about for ages in relation to Boone as a character it brings out a softer side of him that makes him more likable because when he's just trying to help a person grow as a person he's not as harsh and caustic which i think is really important hmm
1: yeah, I think a lot of what gets in Boone's way of being a truly great coach is his exaggeration of the need to win. And to be fair, at the very end of the film, during the championship game at halftime, he's like... You boys are doing all that you can do.
0: Anybody can see that. Win or lose. We're going to walk out of this stadium tonight with our heads held high. Do your best. It's all anybody can ask for. Which I think is actually really great character development moments and I'm glad that he gets there and I'm kind of sad that they walk it back a little bit when the players are like, no. You demanded more of us. You demanded perfection. Now, I ain't saying that I'm perfect because I'm not and I ain't going to never be. None of us are. But we have won every single game we have played till now. So this team is perfect. We stepped out on that field that way tonight and uh, if it's all the same to you, Coach Boone, that's how we want to leave it. I am here for these characters wanting to have self-respect. That they're not doing their best if they don't have that perfect score. But I think it belies a certain lack of full understanding on these characters' behalf of what is going on in terms of being the best and being the winner. So I know that we both have some thoughts about Miyagi and fatherhood, and I think this is a pretty good transition point because Boone is kind of—he's your daddy. I <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I I suppose he is. That scene that we. It's still
1: kind of, hmm. Not one of Boone's better moments. No. Let's go ahead and talk about Miyagi and fatherhood. Yeah.
0: You can tell at the start of the film, once you know Miyagi's story, that he's kind of given up a little bit. He wants to fix small things, but he doesn't really want to get involved in people's lives, as he kind of says directly.
1: For me, good idea. No, get involved.
0: And by the end, he is now like 100% locked in ride or die with Danny, and I think it's really great. And we see that exemplified when he does the thing with the chopping the bottles in half when some jerks are like leaving them on his car and i asked how did you do that don't know first time i feel like at the start of the film miyagi wouldn't have even tried that but now he's branching out and expanding on what he can do as a person i think it's really cool Mm -hmm. a big part of a thing that makes me like feel feelings is when mentors change as much as their their mentees do as you can tell that Kreese is not changing at all with what his students are experiencing.
1: We've talked about all the things that Miyagi is teaching Daniel from bonsai and karate and the way he is teaching him karate. But we haven't really talked about everything that Mr. Miyagi teaches Daniel in the film. Miyagi learned from his father. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of progressing that tradition and making up for lost time that he never had with his child.
0: Yeah, I think we've at least touched on the <clears throat> Danny as surrogate son to Miyagi aspect. Yes. But you're right that it is definitely also a somewhat like passed down father to son thing, which is really cool. Yeah,
1: And like that is solidified even more in the Karate Kid Part 2 where Daniel travels with Miyagi to Okinawa. Really, like everything that Miyagi mentions that he was taught by his father, the only thing he doesn't teach Daniel in this movie is fishing.
0: Yeah, which I understand. Fishing requires still patience, and Daniel Larusso does not have a lot of patience. That is a three-movie arc for him to get
1: there. The relationship between Daniel and Miyagi is just so interwoven into this film, and it's the reason why this film works. A perfect example of that is... Daniel has been doing these household chores for Miyagi for four days. And then finally, he's like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not learning anything here. What the hell is this? And Miyagi finally shows him, this is what I've been teaching you. This is the muscle memory. This is important. The look on Daniel's face as all that's happening and afterward, you can just see how terrible he feels for doubting Mr. Miyagi. mm mm-hmm. There's never been a point where Miyagi has let him down. He fixed his bike after the accident. He made a Halloween costume for him in like maybe an hour or so. As much as he didn't want to, he went with Daniel to figure out the whole situation with the Cobra Kai Jojo. And Miyagi continues to put in effort into maintaining this relationship and Daniel kind of lost faith in that and feels terrible for feeling that way after he's proven wrong.
0: Yeah. I think there's probably a whole ass essay you could write, and I'm sure someone actually has, about how so much of Miyagi's teachings are also coming from a working class place. The fishing, the mechanic stuff, all the different tasks training Danny with are all these very mundane blue collary things as opposed to some sort of like fantastical mystical thing, which I think plays really well into the class dynamics the film is working with. I think it could probably be explored more thoroughly. It's not like Clue or anything, but I like the wisdom of putting in the work is part of it.
1: Yeah, it's very Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance.
0: Yes, that would be a way better way to sum up what I'm <laughs> talking about.
1: That's what I'm here for. <laughs> Another really interesting thing that I picked up on this watch through is the significance of red in the film. Really? So when we think of red in this film, a lot of people jump to Johnny and his very iconic red leather jacket. Yeah. Uh, And that's what we first see him in. And that is very often what he's wearing when he is antagonizing Daniel towards the beginning of the film.
0: Pretty sure the bikes are red too, aren't they?
1: Some of them are. Yeah. There's also... Red and black is the color scheme of the karate tournament at the end. But Daniel is also a few times in red throughout the film. But every time Daniel's in red, it denotes that something bad is going to happen. So the first time we see Daniel wearing red is at the beach party, which then leads to the fight with Johnny and losing everything that he's built up over the past 24 hours. The day after he goes to school, he's wearing a red flannel shirt, which is when the soccer triads occur, which he loses out on that because of sabotage from the Cobra Kai's. Mm. He's wearing red when he enters the Cobra Kai Dojo for the first time, and then the Cobra Kai's ambush him on his way home from the Chinese restaurant. Oh, he wants to learn well here's your first lesson how to take a what you doing? Hey, think about the uh, pain! Ah! We have the red shower curtain at Halloween where He gets his revenge, but then gets assaulted again. This time to where he gets knocked unconscious and has to be saved by Mr. Miyagi. Mm -hmm. He's wearing a red jacket at Encino Oaks when everything goes down and he thinks that Allie is just using him. And he is also wearing a red jacket on his birthday, which is also the same day that the apology with Allie occurs. Mm -hmm. The apology with Allie is a little fuzzy, but it gets to my point red signifies something bad is going to happen to daniel red also usually signifies that daniel is thinking very selfishly very aggressively and embodying toxic masculinity
0: i have a possible way to make the fuzziness of that last scene make some sense actually in that scene i think it's when he finally gets over himself a little bit and realizes that ali has her own internal life and in that she's experiencing yeah. you could make an argument that that becomes him kind of Mastering redness, for lack of better terminology. masculinity ceases to rule him, and he starts using that. Because, you mentioned the karate tournament is very red-themed. When Miyagi is saying no to having a fight in Priest's dojo, he says, Too much advantage. Your dojo. Name a place. Tournament. And so, then Daniel wins in a space that has the red coating, and yet he still succeeds there. So you could make an argument that this is Daniel's mastery over this negative thing, and making it his own as it were mm-hmm. which is a bit of a stretch maybe yeah. not even intentional but yeah. yeah but there's definitely a like red bad thing in the movie yeah i can see that
1: because it's always very prominent where he's wearing red like when he's wearing red it's it stands out a lot it's either the, the baggy red hoodie or the red jacket which is usually paired with a more subtle lighter colored outfit or there's the red and black final
0: yeah whereas i don't think we ever see marita or allie wearing red
1: no, Allie's usually wearing grey or pink and Mr. Miyagi he's usually either in uniform, either his handyman or his former military uniform, or he's usually in like brightly colored Hawaiian shirts. Yep.
0: Yeah, he has a very good aesthetic. But speaking of Allie, I somehow didn't pick up on the whole she sprained her hand punching Johnny. I love how cool she is <laughs> she hit him so hard that she sprained her dang hand. I I know that actually make us think that like hitting people doesn't actually hurt the person who's doing the hitting at all, when in fact it does, and that can like be a, a problem if people aren't hitting carefully. But still, <laughs> you yeah. hit him that hard. But also, it kind of pairs really well with that not-so-great line where Mr. Miyagi says, What's the matter, you're some kind of girl or something? And then we see what a girl hits like.
1: Yeah. Uh, diving a little bit more on Ellie, another thing I noticed is that during the beach party confrontation, Johnny blames Allie for everything after the fight and he blames her for the broken radio and the next day when she and daniel are talking she mentions that it was her fault i mean i guess you should have just given it to her and i really appreciate that daniel turns around like why it wasn't his right and then Allie realizes wait you're right thank you (laughs)
0: And then we have basically the same thing happen again after the guys are jerks on the soccer field and she apologizes for that. And he's like, no, nah, it's, it's cool. It's not your fault. She keeps running cleanup for this, this guy who she's no longer dating, which shows a lingering trauma of feeling like she has to defend this shitty man, which is a thing that a lot of women are trained to do mm-hmm. and it sucks.
1: Yeah. And then later on after... Daniel is the shitty one and trying to call her out for her actions at Encino Oaks. She's having none of it. She doesn't blame herself at all. That's Daniel's problem. (laughs) Right.
0: I would definitely wear a, like, Allie did nothing wrong shirt.
1: (laughs) I think the film is hinting at
0: where that comes from without digging too deep into it. We have that kind of weird scene where Danny's picking Allie up from her house and he knocks into a brick as part of the lawn decor that breaks off and her dad immediately snaps i thought you're gonna have that fixed and then her mom is very defensive of the fact that she hasn't i am i was i will i think the film is hinting at some not great stuff happening in that family without stopping the plot to go too deep into it which i think Mm -hmm. is interesting a lot of times toxic masculinity can start in replicating how parents are yeah
1: again we're like kind of seeing some of the leftover skeleton of what may have been more significant narratives for Johnny and Allie Mm
0: -hmm. but then that pairs really well Mm -hmm. with how Danny's mom is very kind very supportive she apologizes when he calls her out for not asking him about moving and she only pushes when she can tell he's hiding something and is willing to give him more space when she can tell it's good for
1: him a perfect example of that is we see how she is when they're first moving into the apartment and she's like no you you need to make friends go to this party don't worry about helping me unpack tomorrow i love that scene so much and then it's after the beach party and you know daniel's going to his first day at school and he has the glasses on she knows something's up she knows she, he's hiding something and that, that's unlike daniel like they have a pretty open relationship and so she pushes until she figure out what's going on
0: and she pushes very gently at first and when she can tell that he's pushing back then she amps it up it isn't like, like a flip of a dime it's a really well done scene mm-hmm. more scenes from this should be taught in film classes so that i don't ever have to watch any more of birth of a nation <laughs> Ugh.
1: Yeah, Karate Kid, better than Birth of a Nation.
0: <laughs> Karate Kid is better than Birth of a Nation. Denzel Washington is a good actor. These are the hot takes you came to do <laughs> to this posi for. Speaking of these characters and how good they are, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about Karate Kid's structure. Because it's a sports movie that we don't realize has a structural endpoint at a sports tournament until 51 minutes into the movie. <laughs> so, and this is a weird comparison, Jurassic Park... Okay. When... Jurassic Park was being advertised it wasn't like come to this movie we're going to talk about the ethics of science it was come for the dinosaurs but the dinosaurs don't really show up until a good 30 to 40 minutes into the film we see a little bit of them but most of that opening bit is getting us into the characters and their struggles and their conflicts and what they care about and getting to know them really well Karate Kid does kind of the same thing you could remove the karate tournament aspect of the film and have it just be a kind of quiet meditative film about a guy and a handyman And not have the fighting be in it at all, or not as strongly. And it would still work because these characters are really strong and interesting and and compelling. And I think that's a way in which the film works, even though it does make it feel less like a sports film because there's less
1: sports actually happening. I will say it's a little bit different than your comparison of Jurassic Park because while we... They don't introduce the idea of the karate tournament till a good chunk of the way through the film. Karate is pretty omnipresent throughout the film. I mean, when Daniel's first moving in, he talks about how he did karate at the Y back in New Jersey. There's the initial fight scene with Johnny, and then it kind of just everything snowballs from there.
0: Oh, sure. And I'm be a little bit of an unfair comparison because I'm comparing it to *Rumor of the Titans, which has football all time, all all nonstop, basically. Whereas the only little bits of karate throughout. Yeah. It's not that they're not there. It's that they're used very sparingly. In the same way that Jurassic Park only has, I think, like 15 minutes of actual dinosaurs on screen.
1: I will say, I think the reason that Remember the Titans focuses football much more than the Karate Kid focuses karate is because it has the ensemble cast, and the thing that they all have in common is football, so that's the thread that ties everything together, whereas Karate Kid is a much smaller cast. It's much more interested in exploring these relationships outside of fighting.
0: Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think Karate Kid works as it is. I'm not. It's not... A not enoughness
1: it's not that either approach is bad it's just that these are the reasons for the different approaches right another very small but great thing i noticed this watch through is when we're first introduced to mr miyaki he is trying to catch a fly with chopsticks mm-hmm. all it does is make that later scene even better because it's very obvious that Mr. Miyagi has been trying this on and off for years, possibly decades to do this, and then Daniel just sits down and within five minutes gets (laughs) singed. the frustration that Miyagi has afterwards is even more hilarious and even more understandable.
0: Mm -hmm. That scene also makes Miyagi a lot more hostile because he's frustrated that he hasn't been able to catch this fly. So he's more curt with Daniel than he might normally have been. And that starts to make him seem a little scarier and, and more mysterious. Like, what's he doing with his top six? Is he a madman? Who knows? Yeah, But I think that also ties into the whole things are not always as they seem and -hmm. that this scary crazy maintenance man is actually someone who's trying very hard to achieve a a very difficult task.
1: Although the introduction with Miyagi there, compare that to the way that we're introduced to the woman on the lawn chair when Daniel's first moving in. Freddie mentions, like, She's not <laughs> playing with the full thing. And Daniel's like, She's <laughs> nice. So Daniel has a history of empathizing with those who are thought to be a little out there. And I think that's one of the reasons that Daniel and Miyagi are able to hit it off as well as they are.
0: Oh, for sure. The film is telegraphing to us this, this very odd figure, but Danny is, doesn't have quite the same reaction to him because he's otherwise having a pretty good day of This is a really small thing, but when Danny and Ally first meet, the camera isn't in their perspective. It's not her looking up at him and him looking down at her. It's a fairly level camera at their eye level, so we're looking at their reactions to each other as opposed to what they're seeing. I think that's a very subtle thing, but it gives them both equal weight in their emotional landscape, which is really cool. I appreciate that because it helps make Ally more of a character who has agency.
1: Having it where the camera's looking down on Allie and up at Daniel, it sets a tone for the relationship that is not what we see in the film.
0: Exactly. And by averting that, it helps emphasize this idea of a very equal partnership.
1: Yes. I think it's about time for the extra innings.
0: And because of the finale, we have extra, extra innings. So, as always, we're going to have the best training gimmick and best training montage. We're also going to get into the best grand finale, the best romance, and the best motivational speech. What order do you want to hit things in?
1: Let's go ahead and hit the usual two first.
0: Okay, so what are our best training gimmicks?
1: Well, we have the Gettysburg speech, and we have Wax On, Wax Off.
0: I'm still sad it's not remembering the Alamo as a <laughs> as a thing, but that wouldn't fit these characters. I'm obviously going to have to give it to Wax On, Wax Off. It's both... Not laden with weirdness of the Civil War, but also by sheer chance, I had to clean a lot of tables for a work thing this week. And I wound up doing the wax on, wax off thing. And my arms did in fact hurt after that. (laughs) I understand Danny's frustration more, having done that for presumably like eight hours or whatever. And after having done that, it wound up being a workout. And I I did feel ready to fight Billy Zabka.
1: (laughs) That moves us into training montage. Yeah, I think I'm also going to have to give it to Karate Kid here with the training montage right before the tournament for Daniel Solo, the golden hour. It's so wonderfully shot. See, I'm
0: of two minds. I think it's a very good scene, but I also really like the training montages of the training camp that have some really nice cinematography and do a good job of showing the characters growing and changing. Yeah. Although having said that, I feel those montages less because of how many characters there are, and they don't feel as personal. Whereas the one for Daniel feels incredibly personal, and it's <laughs> interesting to see this like very small bundle of sticks trying yeah. to balance on a post at the beach.
1: Yeah, I think one of the downsides of the training montages in Remember the Titans is... Very often they are wearing helmets and it's very difficult to tell who's who and get more involved with these characters. You kind of have to think of them as this cohesive unit of the Titans as opposed to individual characters. Mm. And while I get that's what the film's going for, a lot of the emotional impact of the film comes from these individual character moments.
0: Mm. And the training camp montage comes pretty early before we've really locked into who these characters are, mm-hmm. so it doesn't quite have the same effect.
1: Yes. All right, so that's two for Krundy Kid.
0: Where do you want to go next?
1: I think we should save best finale for the end. So I guess it's what motivational speech and relationship. Yeah. So what's the best motivational speech from *Power of the Titans*? I would peg the best motivational speech as Julius at the halftime for the final game and
0: I ain't saying that I'm perfect because I'm not, and I ain't gonna never be. None of us are. But this team
1: is perfect. I really appreciate that. Especially since it's their coach who has been this hard ass for the entire season saying, you know, I know you're doing your best out there. It's okay if we don't win tonight. And Julius and the others being like, with all due respect we wouldn't feel we've done our best unless we try to win.
0: Yeah, you know, you're bringing me around. I'll accept that as the best motivational speech here. What about Karate Kid? What's the best motivational speech
1: on that end? I think for me, it's when Miyagi is demonstrating exactly why he's had Daniel do all these things, and he chastises him, and he's like, Hey, look I Always look I It's very short, it's very to the point, but just the emotion on Mr. Miyagi's face, the emotion on Daniel's face, and how very important it is. Like, you no, know, I need you to look me in the eyes. Always look your opponent in the eye.
0: That's a good point. I would also actually consider Danny's speech about needing balance, which kind of serves the same role as speech that we decided for Room things, where he talks about how-
1: At one point, that I can take a beating? I mean, every time I see those guys, they're gonna know they got the best of me. None
0: of that balanced that way. Not with them, not with Allie. Not with me. I think it's a really good conclusion of his arc as a character of starting as having a very pessimistic outlook, but moving to someone who wants to keep trying, even though everyone and their uncle is giving him an out to just
1: stop Mm. now. That's a good one. That's a tough decision between those two. Even so, I think I'm still going to give it to Remember the Titans. I think Remember the Titans is. Has some really great motivational speeches. I think that's one of the things that has made it stick out so far in our bracket and in the cultural consciousness. Sure, it has these really great monologues that are very powerful. Yeah, and I
0: mean, one of those monologues is in fact also a training gimmick. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's fair.
1: I'm okay of Titans. That's one of the things it does the best. Mm-hmm. So, our second to last category, best relationship. Mm-hmm. So, for Karate Kid, we can go one of two ways. We can go. Daniel, Mr. Miyagi, or we can go Daniel, Alley. I
0: mean, I, who am not a coward, was saying best romance, so... <laughs> but I think if we're talking about best interpersonal relationship, I would say that the one between Miyagi and Danny is more impactful for both of them.
1: Yes. I think both of those people grow more from that relationship than Daniel and Ali grow from their relationship. Yeah. Even though all parties involved grow from both of those relationships. Right, And then... Obviously, it has to be Gary and Julius for Remember the Titans. Right. The... The barely not a romance. The
0: barely not a romance stopped only by, I guess, canon. What do you mean? History. That's what, that's what we call it. I mean, the they do
1: call it the historical world. canon. That's
0: true. That's true. Yeah. The only reason that romance didn't happen is because it, in fact, did not happen. <laughs> to quote a meme I saw, sometimes things that are canon are worse. <laughs> That relationship is strong for a lot of reasons, one of them being that you can see it forming even in background scenes, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of times when those two will act as as a single coherent unit that forms a synactic key for their respective groups on the team. Yeah. I think it's really important.
1: Gary listening to Julius and his complaints are what allows the team to finally come together at training camp.
0: Mm-hmm. But also Julius listening to Gary's call out of his fuck you got mine attitude helps him start caring about the team and th- them as a cohesive group.
1: I mean, there's also just great scenes with- Ma, just give him a chance. Just get to know him. Listen to him for two seconds. I... <laughs>
0: <sighs> how he uh, talks to Julius before he talks to his girlfriend after that one game.
1: <sighs> it's fine, but it's
0: fine. But of these two relationships being more serious, what is the stronger of the two? And question, how do we define a strong relationship? actually no I can answer that really easily of the two who are more drift compatible
1: <laughs> okay if we're talking about drift compatibility it's obviously Gary and Julius <laughs> <laughs> if we're going with like the drift compatibility metaphor Daniel and Mr. Miyagi are just two very different people and they have a very strong bond they have grown very close they have affected each other very deeply but they're still on different wavelengths you're the best friend I ever had
0: are you Pretty okay,
1: too. Whereas Gary and Julius are just, as their relationship grows, they become more and more the same person. <laughs>
0: oh. What kind of power do you got? What kind of question is that? I got soon! Yes, you do. on, no, let me ask you something
1: now, Mr. Bertil. Yes, I'm strong with you. I'm too strong. What? I'm, strong. I'm too strong. Oh, I'm strong. i think I'm going to give this one to Titans just because of how queer-baity is.
0: Yeah. Pledge like, for baiting.
1: Weirdly. Yeah.
0: I think that one is, m- is the most very obviously important one, whereas we're kind of split on Miyagi and Ali for Danny. Yes. So we're tied up right now. So who has the best tournaments versus championship?
1: So we have the karate tournament and Karate Kid, mm-hmm. where Daniel is going through and winning matches against his abusers. Mm-hmm. Then we have Kreese, who's getting so worried about the possibility of Daniel proving himself and wanting to completely destroy his morale, forces one of his students to disqualify themselves in order to injure Daniel so he can no longer compete and has to forfeit. Mm. Then Daniel comes back from that and still manages to win while injured against his girlfriend's ex and his lead tormentor.
0: Oh, Quick sidebar because I realize I haven't said this so far. I'm really glad that it isn't like defeat your girlfriend's ex in order to win her affections. She's already like locked in before that happens. So that's yes, really that is yeah.
1: very important. Yeah. In fact, right before the tournament, is like, Well, what if I lose? And Allie's just like
0: So will leave early. Yeah. Which is really fun. Contrasting that we have the championship match in with the Titans.
1: So the Titans are going in undefeated. They have just been dealt a huge Morale blow with Gary's injury and everything surrounding that and the first half they just are getting clobbered. And Petey, after the last game, kind of abandoned everyone and then tries to be on the starting lineup again. Coach is like, no, you're sitting on the bench this round. You abandoned your team. We get the motivational speech from Julius at halftime. Cheryl convinces her dad not to be proud and asks for help from Boone on defense. And so some of the offensive players move on to defense like Ronnie and Ellen. And that also turns around with you know, so like their defense is really good they know all your plays you got to give them something completely out of the blue to throw them off and that's how they are able to win with 17 seconds on the clock after getting control of the ball back when PD came onto the field to replace Allen
0: mm-hmm. which is also a very combination of Boone's arc of having only four plays do them all the time over and over and over again and how he's now learned to embrace spontaneity Mm. and losing some control i'll admit part of this is at least coming from me being more of a fan of watching martial arts than watching football Mm. but i think i would give it more to the tournament from karate kid both because i think it's a little more personal i think it's a little more tight and it's if only because of the inherent nature of the one-on-one tournaments it's easier to see what's happening and what's going on whereas i'm still not entirely sure who's who on that field unless the camera is like right up in their faces
1: Fair enough. I'm actually going the opposite way. I think Titans deserves it more. I think part of it is because they blow past a lot of the tournament in montage. And honestly, I think there it feels like it cheapens the tournament, at least everything before the semifinal round. Mm, Okay. Whereas with the Titans State Championship game, I really love how frantic it is. I love all the quick cuts. I love the very dynamic camera work going on during those plays and with all the tackling and whatnot how exhausted the players are and it really feels like the cuts between coach boone and coach henry like they're these two commanders who are moving their armies around each other and really equals mm. and for most of the game it could be any. The come from behind score with 17 seconds on the clock is just phenomenal and also historically accurate. Oh, okay, cool. So I think I'm going to give it to Titans. So I guess we're split on that final one.
0: Hmm, interesting. I guess you could say that they both get like 0. 0.5 points. Yeah. So my notes say they both had 11.5 points. <laughs> I think tally marks up till now. <laughs> so I guess it comes down to just which movie is better.
1: My vote is going to The Karate Kid. I think Remember the T- Titans is a tremendous film. I think it does a lot of things right. But part of what brings it down, some of the less great scenes, like the kiss from Sunshine and Coach Boone's character and the way it lionizes Coach Boone and his very aggressive and toxic coaching style.
0: Yeah, I think that's also kind of what tipped it for me. I think that... Remember the Titans is in conversation with toxic masculinity, but it's dealing with so many other things too, whereas Karate Kid is dealing with that and it's dealing with it in a very thorough way. And I think it is a more healthy film if you needed to show one of these two films to someone who needed to grow as a person.
1: Yes. And that's not to say that Karate Kid is all sunshine and rainbows. There are a few parts that do stumble, but I think in general they stumble less than Remember the Titans does. Mm Mm-hmm. But
0: again, they're both very good. They're both very strong. So this is hitting more buttons for us.
1: Yes. So Karate Kid, I'd just like to say that you're the best. Oh, wow. Look, you and with that, we have finished off our sports bracket. Woo! And we are going to be moving on to a few participation trophies.
0: Uh, what do we have for the Participation Trophy films, and why?
1: So, first up for our Participation Trophies, we wanted to dig into some more sports comedies. We had Blades of Glory, and for the most part, that was kind of it. Everything else was a little bit more traditional, mm-hmm. or really weird like Space Jam.
0: Mm-hmm. Slapshot is billed as a sports comedy.
1: You you could call it that, but comedy's a strong word for that film. Film um, was a
0: strong word for that
1: film. <laughs> That's also true. So in that regard, we're going to be tossing on some more typical examples of sports comedies. And we've also decided that we are still only going to include one sport per for this bracket. So our participation trophies, we're going to be watching ping pong movie, Balls of Fury, and curling movie, (laughs) Men with Brooms. (laughs) Because I saw an R-rated curling movie and I'm like, yes, I don't know how I'm getting that under the bracket, but we're watching it. Yeah. Then for the other participation trophy we want to do something also very weird so we decided that we're going to be doing a knight's Tale* and speed racer
0: which are sort of sports movies <laughs> one is jousting one is racing space racing we needed something genre and all this uh, bracket gave us was space jam
1: those will be coming up in the next two weeks also Right here, I'd like to announce our next bracket. Starting on Friday, the 13th of September, 2019, we are beginning our monster movie bracket. This will be a little bit different from us. We're only going to be doing eight films, but we have chosen the films in our normal way. Highest domestic grossing. However... The categories are based off of the classic Universal Movie Monsters with a few curveballs thrown in there as well. So we're going to do a werewolf movie, a vampire movie, a mummy movie. And hopefully the full bracket listing will be up shortly after this episode airs, which means if you are a podcaster and would like to collaborate with us on one of those episodes, please reach out to us. We would love to have you.
0: And if you're not a podcaster and want to collaborate anyway... Cool. We will figure out how to use your computer's bad microphone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So that is a preview of coming attractions, as it were. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.